Thank you all so much for leading us in worship this morning. The time they take to prepare and to practice is time well spent. But do not forget this. The most important instrument, though I love the instruments. Dan, I love it when you play drums. The most important instrument in this room is the voice of the congregation. The way that we lift our voices in praise of this God and simultaneously in protest against those who would seek to rival our God is a powerful thing that we do. Amen? We're going to be continuing this morning our series in the book of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 12. That's where we'll be this morning. The stage might look a little bit different. There's planets up here. Um, uh, actually, the moon, I guess a planet, a satellite, if you will. Um, we're setting up for tomorrow is the beginning of Stellar, our VBS this year. As a matter of fact, after service, we're going to make a quick change into VBS Decorating Day. I mentioned last week, if you're able to stick around with us, we'd love to have your help this afternoon. Um, if anything, though, even if you got to get going, we would love your help at the end. We'll be stacking chairs and clearing them out to get things ready. But we'll talk more about that in a little bit. For now, again, Matthew chapter 12, if you don't have a Bible, the ushers were just passing them around. Um, they would love to put one in your hands. Last week, we looked at the first part of Matthew chapter 12, where there are these two stories that take place on the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest. And we saw in those stories the way that Jesus was seeking to restore the Sabbath to God's intended purpose, both as a day to enjoy resting in God and to extend rest to others. It was beautiful, wasn't it? To do good as it is in your power to do it, to serve and bring relief to others is a good use of the gift of Sabbath. But surprisingly, Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath, the audacity to do it on the day of rest, also proved to be the last straw for the Pharisees. It's at this point that they make up their minds. We saw this at the end of the passage last week. That after this happens, the Pharisees go out and they conspire to destroy Jesus. But we also, after the Pharisees withdraw from Jesus, Jesus kind of surprisingly withdraws from them as well. He goes off, the crowds come to him, he continues his teaching and preaching and healing ministry. But he withdraws from the Pharisees. And we talked about that last week, that he doesn't do this out of cowardice, out of an unwillingness to face them, but because he knew it was not the time. The time for a more direct confrontation with the Pharisees will come in the future. But what I want you to see today is part of the reason why, with, why Jesus withdraws from the Pharisees is because they are not the main enemy that Jesus came to face. He has bigger fish to fry as we'll see in the passage this morning. So again, if you're in your place, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37 together this morning. And if you are able to, would you stand with me as we read this together? This is the word of the Lord. Then a demon-oppressed man who was both blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But... If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Gosh, there's a lot of good stuff here. Let's begin back at, the, at where we started in verse 22. We see another healing miracle of Jesus. There is a man who is both blind, unable to see, and mute, unable to speak, who is brought to Jesus, and he heals him. We've seen many healing miracles of Jesus throughout the book of Matthew up to this point, even healing blindness. But this isn't just a healing story, is it? Because what was the source of this man's blindness and inability to speak? He was demon-oppressed, oppressed by an evil spirit. So this is also an exorcism miracle, a deliverance from an evil spirit miracle going on. Now we have to be careful here because the way, it's interesting in this story the way those two ideas come together. There is a physical problem going on with this man, but it has a spiritual cause. That does not mean that every physical ailment or injury has a spiritual cause to it. Nor does it mean that all spiritual oppression shows itself in, in physical ways. But at least in this story, Matthew makes it clear to us that the source of the problem for this man was demonic. And it was something that was obvious and, and recognized, acknowledged by the people that were there, including the Pharisees. They all know there's something demonic going on here. So when Jesus del both delivers this man from the demon and heals him of his ailment, the crowd's amazed. Look what it says in verse 23. All the people were amazed and they said, can this be the son of David? Now that's key. That term son of David, we've seen it before in the book of Matthew. This is a title for the Messiah, that promised saving ruler king that God promised he would send to his people. But did you notice, this is the first time that a messianic title is used in reference to Jesus by the crowds, by a group of people. We've heard Matthew, again at the very beginning, call Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. We've, we've actually heard other blind men come up to Jesus saying, we believe you're the son of David. We've even heard demons themselves acknowledge Jesus as the son of God. But this is the first time that a crowd, a kind of more anonymous group of people observing what Jesus is doing, start to ask the question, could this be the Messiah? And that's what prompts the Pharisees to react so strongly and publicly to what's going on here. Because remember, like we saw in just a couple of verses before, the Pharisees just really re recently made up their minds about Jesus. They've decided he can't possibly be the Messiah. He's actually a threat that needs to be destroyed. And so they think in their minds, we have to use what authority, influence, voice we have with the people to answer the question that they're asking so that they don't answer it for themselves. And here's what they say. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. That word Beelzebul, it's an Aramaic title that means lord of the house or master of the house. You may have a translation that might say something a little bit different, has the word Beelzebub instead of Beelzebul. That's probably not original. And as a matter of fact, that word Beelzebub is probably like a mocking nickname that Jewish people gave to this one known as Beelzebul, the master of the house. You change around that last letter from an L to a B or whatever it is in Hebrew, and it goes from Lord of master of the house, the guy running everything, to 
Lord of the Flies. It's a pejorative, a put-down, right? Maybe you read, I remember reading in middle school, a book by that title. Really interesting, twisted book about the darkness of people left to ourselves. But also a really fascinating read at the same time. That's not the point of of the passage right here. They use these two phrases. This one is Beelzebul, the master of the house. He's also known as the prince of demons. Jesus knows exactly who they're talking about, but he uses a different title to refer to this being. You see that in verse 26? He uses the the word Satan, which is actually not a proper name. It's another title. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it most often occurs with the word the on the front end. The Satan. It means the adversary, the opponent, the enemy. It is this being, this spiritual being that we first encounter in the Bible in Genesis 3 as that serpent who comes into this lush, beautiful garden, comes to this man and woman made in God's image to live in relationship with him and says, aren't true. His character isn't faithful. As a matter of fact, he's holding out on you. You could become greater if you listen to me. And when both Adam and Eve choose to listen to his voice, eat that fruit that God told them not to eat from, that is when the Satan became the master of the house. He did not lead humanity into freedom and self-determination, but into bondage to his rule. Here's what we need to understand, because sometimes we get confused about this in our day and age. We, sometimes we like to think of evil as just a, a thing, a force, and maybe an idea. But according to the Bible's view of reality, evil, like all ideas, has a personal source. It comes from a person in the same way that God is the source of all that is good and true and beautiful. This Satan, this adversary is the source of all corruption and evil and lies. And that's who the Pharisees say is behind what Jesus is doing. This is a serious charge More serious, I think, than the Pharisees realized, which is why I think Jesus takes some time. He gives a lengthy response in which he both addresses the seriousness of the charge that they bring against him, but also kind of the the silliness. It doesn't even make sense. But he also takes it as an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus where he cracks the door open wider. Understand what I really came to do. Understand the real enemy that I came to confront. Look at this. Verse 25. Again, whether Jesus knew their thoughts somehow supernaturally or he was just aware of the buzz going around around in the scene, Jesus knows that they're thinking this is demonic. This is Satan at work. And he goes, hold on a second. That doesn't even make sense. Every kingdom that's divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. Speaking more generally about almost like a civil war kind of condition. If within one kingdom, there's people fighting against each other. How strong is that kingdom? That doesn't even make sense. And if Satan, verse 26, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? He's saying this is absurd. It doesn't even make sense. Why would Satan, the father of lies, the prince of demons who delights to oppress and torment people, want to see people delivered from evil spirits? That doesn't even make sense. And he pushes the the absurdity even further in verse 27. And if you're saying that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, what does that mean for your exorcists? That's probably the idea of your sons there, that even within the camp of the Pharisees, there were those who practiced deliverance type things through their own rituals to deliver people from evil spirits. And it seems, at least from what Jesus says, that they were somewhat successful. They could do it. And so here's Jesus' point. If you are saying the only way that I could cast out this demon is by the power of Satan's, are you saying that that's the same power behind what your exorcists are doing? But if you're okay with them because they're part of your group, on what ground are you against me? Therefore, they will be your judges. That's the first point he says. This don't even make sense, right? But don't miss this detail. Look back at verse 26. Did you notice what Jesus says about this Satan? He says he has a kingdom. He has a kingdom. He has rule. He has authority. 
The Pharisees themselves acknowledge him as the prince or the ruler over demons, other evil spirits. But Jesus goes even beyond that. In the book of John chapter 12, Jesus refers to Satan by the title ruler of this world. The ruler of this world, this current age, the reality of life on this earth since Genesis 3, Satan is the ruler of it. Doesn't mean he has authority over God. We don't want to go there. But it does mean that from the moment Adam and Eve came under his rule, all humanity from them is born under that same rule. He is the ruler of this world. 1 John 5 even says that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So understand this, because sometimes the cartoons we grew up on give us really shoddy ideas about who this Satan is. He's not some red pitchforked guy sitting on your shoulder telling you to do bad things. He's also not the ruler of hell, the one in charge of tormenting people. Hell, the lake of fire, we'll see later, is actually a place designed for the torment of Satan. It's not a place over which he rules. If you want to know where Satan operates as ruler, it's in this world. 1 Peter 5, Peter says that Satan roams about this world like a roaring lion seeking to devour people. That's who he is. That's why I thought it'd be good to sing that 500-year-old hymn beforehand that tells us about this ancient foe who seeks to work woe against us. His craft, his power are great. He has cruel hate. And you know what? There's not a single person on earth who is his equal. And if we were left to our own strength, if all we had confidence in was our own ability to get out of this mess, our striving would be losing. We'd have no chance unless the right man is on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it's he. He is the Lord of hosts and he must win the battle. You see, Jesus acknowledges here in verse 26 that Satan has a kingdom, but guess what? Jesus has a kingdom too. And what we see in this passage, what's really going on, though the Pharisees say Satan is empowering Jesus to do this. Jesus says, no, open your eyes. What's really going on here is I am bringing the kingdom of God to confront and defeat the kingdom of Satan. Look at this, verse 28. Maybe, there we go. But if the kingdom, if the spirit of God is the one who causes me to cast out demons, if it's by the spirit of God that I do this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's trying to reason with the Pharisees, even though he knows, and he'll say later, you're beyond hope. You've passed the point of no return. But just stop and try to consider for a minute if it isn't this absurd claim that you've made that it's Satan that's empowering me, but it's actually the spirit of God. Do you see what that means? The very rule of God to defeat the mischief and mayhem of Satan is here in me. It's come upon you. Don't miss it. That word come upon you, it actually could be translated to to overtake you or to get ahead of you or to catch you off guard, catch you by surprise. It's like a predator stalking its prey like down in the weeds and then pounces when the prey is least suspecting it. I know this caught you off guard. Remember a couple weeks ago when we started this section, we read through chapters 11, 12, and 13. I told you the the main theme of this whole section is that gap between expectation and reality. Between what people were expecting from the Messiah and the reality of the way that Jesus operated as Messiah. And I think that's what he's going after here. He goes, I get that this isn't unfolding the way you Pharisees expected. It snuck up on you. It caught you by surprise. But don't miss it. It is the kingdom of God. It is the good rule of God to abolish sin and suffering and Satan and all of it. It's here. Don't miss it. And especially don't write it off as evil. Otherwise, you are setting yourself up against God. We'll come back to verse 29, this idea of binding the strong man and plundering his house in a minute. But I want to turn instead to verse 30 where Jesus kind of shifts his focus from a defense of what he's doing to pointing out the grave error of what the Pharisees are doing. And look what he says there in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. 
Whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you're not trying to build what I'm trying to build, you're trying to dismantle it. If you are not with me, you're against me. Now remember, Jesus is speaking specifically to the Pharisees here, but his words apply to every one of us. He gives no middle ground. There is no neutral Switzerland position. There are ultimately only two kingdoms that you can be a part of, Satan's kingdom or God's kingdom. And whoever is not with Jesus is against him. This is serious. This reminds us, as we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, that at the end of the day, it's not just about what you think about Jesus or what you feel about him or even just what you believe about him. Are you with him? Are you following him? Are you his disciple, this apprentice learning to model your life after him? Have you joined him in his mission? Are you trying to gather what he's trying to gather or are you scattering it? There's only two kingdoms. There's no neutral. And here's an important point to mention. We don't start out in this life neutral, unaffiliated with either God's kingdom or Satan's kingdom. We're not born as like kingdom free agents who get to pick which kingdom we want to be a part of. This is really important to understand. According to the Bible's view of reality, every single one of us, because we're born from that same twisted family of Adam and Eve, are born already with our passports as part of Satan's kingdom. That's where our citizenship, the default setting of our lives, already lies from the moment we draw our first breath. Look at the way that Paul puts it in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 when he says this. He's talking to a group of people who then come to Jesus about the condition of their lives and of everyone else before coming to Jesus. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. Well, what's the course of this world? Well, you're following the prince of the power of the air, another title for this Satan, this adversary. He is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is where we all start. Because we're born from that broken family line of Adam and Eve. From the moment that they ate the fruit of that tree, they listened to the voice of the serpent. They came under his rule. But even all the way back then in Genesis chapter 3, at that same, in that same scene when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God's rule and instead became enslaved under Satan's rule, God gives us this precious promise. Actually, it's a promise that he gives to the serpent about his coming destruction, that the mischief that he's managed will not be manageable forever. Look what he says here in Genesis chapter 14. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. That word bruise is far too weak. It actually means to strike with a fatal blow, to kill. He will, kill, he will kill you by crushing your head and you will kill him by biting his heel is the idea. There's a promise all the way back there in the garden of this one that we often talk about. And we say this a lot in children's ministry of the snake crusher. The one who would come from the line of Adam and Eve who would do battle against the serpent. They both would be killed in the conflict but in that way the mayhem of Satan would be broken. And spoiler alert, that's who Jesus is. He is the snake crusher. He is the one who came to do battle against that serpent. They both did die or were destroyed in that conflict. But guess what happened three days later? Our king rose again, right? Well, again, we're not to that point of Matthew's gospel yet. We'll get there. It's going to be amazing. But even here, all the way back in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus makes it clear that he has come both to bring God's kingdom and to dismantle Satan's kingdom. I have come to do battle with him. The way he puts it again in verse 29 is with this metaphor of binding, tying up a strong man so you can plunder his house, take everything that belongs to him. 
He says, that's what I've come to do. You want to know what my mission as Messiah is all about? It's that. I have come to bind that strong man, Satan, and plunder his house. Now, this is not the, the, the picture here is not of a thief breaking into someone's house and taking what rightfully belongs to them. Satan is the thief. Jesus is the one sent on this mission by his father to reclaim what is rightfully his that Satan wrongly took. Do you see, I said at the beginning, the reason why Jesus in chapter 12 withdraws from the Pharisee is because he has bigger fish to fry. Do you see what I mean? The Pharisees might have thought that they were Jesus' biggest enemy, or at least he was their biggest enemy. But Jesus looks at him and he goes, you don't even understand. There is something so much bigger going on here. I am here to dismantle the very kingdom of Satan. So here's the picture that's been in my mind throughout this week as I've been studying this passage. You ever see like those, uh, whether it's a, a classic war movie like Braveheart or um, like one of the Marvel movies where there's a big battle scene at the end? There's always that moment. There's this, you know, the big scrum, everybody's fighting and hacking each other to pieces. And then there's that moment when the main character sees the main villain across the battlefield, right? And he goes, oh, there he is. I got to go get him. The whole audience knows, yeah, that's the guy. Go get him. And he starts to walk toward that villain. And typically what ends up happening? Some lower pawn random soldier in the army charges up to the hero trying to fight him. And the hero either just pushes him down, hacks him in pieces, says, get out of my way. I'm trying to get to him, right? That's the idea that's been in my mind as I've been studying this passage. The Pharisees are going, Jesus is a problem. We got to deal with him. We got to use our power and our authority. And Jesus is like, get out of my way. I have come here to go after that ancient foe, that Satan, that adversary. And you are small potatoes, right? That doesn't mean, though, that what the Pharisees are doing by claiming that Jesus is empowered by Satan isn't a big problem. It really is for them, it really is. These are the religious leaders of Israel, the experts in the Jewish law, and they have decidedly taken their side against Jesus. But if Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God, they are now opposing God's kingdom, which puts them squarely on whose side of the battle? He's going, you might accuse me of being empowered by Satan, but do you realize what your words expose? It's out of the abundance of your heart that your mouth speaks. Here's what your words say is the reality of what's going on with you. Look what he says in verse 34. Look what he calls them. You brood of vipers. Brood is the word that means like offspring. Like picture a hen with all her brood of chicks under her wings or something like that. He's saying, you children of snakes. That's the reality of what's going on here. He's, this is the same term that John the Baptist used about the Pharisees back in chapter 3. But I actually think both John and Jesus use this phrase, not just as a put down. I think they are directly alluding back to that promise from Genesis 3. Remember God told the serpent there would be enmity, fighting, warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Do you see what Jesus is saying to them? You have chosen your side. You are little snakes just following the big snake. And this will not turn out any better for you than it will for him. That's the main idea in this whole idea of the unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about there in verses 31 through 33. Now again, there's a lot of debate about this passage. Unfortunately, this passage, the words of Jesus have been used to cause a lot of angst and worry for a lot of people throughout the years, wondering if somehow they have committed this unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about here. I've had many conversations with people about that. And again, we don't have time to fully unpack that whole idea this morning. But what I do want to do is try to clarify what I think Jesus is talking about in this particular instance. Different churches, different groups might say... I mean, the Catholic Church creates a whole category of like mortal sins that you can't be forgiven of. Jesus doesn't do that, but here's what he's talking about here. He talks about this sin that is not forgivable called to the blasphemy of the Spirit, the blasphemy or to speak against the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about that particular issue for a second. The word blasphemy can also be translated to slander someone, to defame them. One source I looked at said that it is, it's the word for the strongest form of personal mockery. 
the strongest way that you can seek to demean and devalue someone. And throughout the scriptures, when that idea of blasphemy, demeaning, slandering is used in reference to God, to do that to God, Craig Blomberg, a New Testament scholar, he says that blaspheming God refers to the fragrant, not fragrant, flagrant, willful, and persistent rejection of God and his commands. Not just an accidental phrase that you might have misspoke or said in a moment of anger or something like that, but he says, the flagrant, willful, persistent rejection of God and his commands. It can also refer to speaking lies against God, speaking lies about God's word or his character. Again, like the serpent did in Genesis 3. God's word is a lie, you won't die. Therefore, if his God's word is a lie, his character can't be trusted. He is not good. Isaiah 5 talks about, woe to those who get it backwards, who make good evil and evil good. That's what this idea is about, the complete inversion of this. And is that not exactly what the Pharisees are doing in this passage? They have demonstrated that flagrant, willful, persistent rejection of Jesus in his message. And even here, they are refusing to acknowledge the clear evidence of the Spirit's power working through him and instead saying it's actually Satan doing it. They have flipped it around. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to attribute the clear saving power of the Spirit of God to his ultimate enemy. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And because of this, because of what the Pharisees are doing, they're not only looking at Jesus and saying, no thanks, I want something else. They are actively opposing him and attributing his power to Satan. And Jesus says, for you, there is no forgiveness there is no forgiveness for this. Why? Why is there no forgiveness for them? Well, because in rejecting Jesus, they are rejecting the only one through whom forgiveness comes. You see that? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says that it's in Christ that we find forgiveness, the redemption from our sins through his blood. And if you reject Jesus, you reject forgiveness, right? Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says this. He says, salvation is found in no one else. And guess who he's talking to? The religious leaders of Israel saying, you guys, you've gotten this wrong. There's salvation found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And by rejecting Jesus, by attributing the Spirit's power working through him to Satan, the Pharisees are rejecting the only source of forgiveness that there is. That's why there's no forgiveness for them. And so Jesus, get this, Jesus says with the prerogative that only he has to judge the hearts of people. We don't have that prerogative. But with the prerogative that he has to judge the hearts of people, he looks at the Pharisee and he says, you will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Why? Because you have clearly chosen your side. You are the little snakes. You are the brood of vipers. You are the offspring of the serpent and you will share in his Destruction. This is heavy. One other detail that I think is really interesting here, though. Did you notice in verse 32 that Jesus makes a differentiation between speaking against the Holy Spirit, which is not forgivable, and speaking against the Son of Man, Him, which He says is forgivable? Why is that the case? Why is it a less big deal to speak against Jesus than it is about the Holy Spirit? And again, a lot we could say here, but here's, I think, the main idea. Pay very careful attention to when Jesus says this. When in his ministry he says this. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he understands that he's doing things in a way that don't fit with people's expectation. Remember, that's the main theme, that gap between expectation and reality. And he understands that within that gap, people can get confused. And when we get confused, we don't typically just stay confused. We get frustrated. We get angry. 
There's a hiddenness to Jesus' identity, his, his mission that, that is gradually un, unveiled. The, the, the faders go up. You see more of the detail as his ministry progresses, especially after he rises from the dead. Boom, bright spotlight. This is the Messiah, right? But at this point, he understands. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, I understand if you don't know what to do with me yet. And I understand if in that, if the unexpected way that I'm bringing the kingdom is confusing to you. And at this point in time, I guess you could say is, people could speak against him as the son of man without realizing that they are opposing the work of God. And as greater clarity would come later, so also forgiveness would be offered to those who come to him for it. Like Peter. What does Peter do while Jesus is on trial? speaks against him by not denying any association with him three times. And yet Peter is forgiven and restored. Or think about the apostle Paul, who before Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, actively, violently opposed Christians, threw them into prison, and yet that dude got forgiven? Yeah, because he came to Jesus for that forgiveness. So here's the question, right? If you're wondering, if you've ever battled or wrestled with that question, have I committed this unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about here? Let me, let me share with you this quote from Craig Blomberg. I thought he put this really well where he said this. If someone rejects the spirit of God in Jesus, there is no one else in all the cosmos who can provide salvation. He's it. If you reject him, there's no hope. But, I love this, we should never dare label anyone as having committed this unforgivable sin. Only God knows human hearts and we would often make the wrong guess. Moreover, professing believers who fear or worry that they have committed the unforgivable sin demonstrate by that worry a concern for their spiritual welfare, which by definition proves they have not committed it. You get what he's saying there? If you are concerned, burdened by the thought that you've done something that's unforgivable, that very concern and burden that you feel demonstrates that you are not beyond hope. So what do we do when we are burdened by the guilt of our sin? We do the very thing the Pharisees refuse to do. We come to Jesus. We come to him. We acknowledge our sin and we find forgiveness there. But if you stay away from Jesus, if you keep him at arm's length, he's my homeboy, we're cool, I don't really have anything to do with him, but I don't have a problem with him either. If you try to maintain the, the, the imaginary idea that you are neutral, neither for nor against him, remember what Jesus himself said, whoever is not for me is against me, whoever's not with me is against me. So if you have not yet come to Jesus, do so today. And if you have come to Jesus, keep coming to him. Especially, especially when you become aware of your sin, when you become aware that you have done something that violates or defames him. Confession is not just something that we do at the beginning of our Christian life, confess our sins and ask Jesus to save us. We continue to do that. That continues to be the pattern of the Christian life. The way that John puts it in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, he says, if we say we have no sins, we're liars. As a matter of fact, we make God a liar who says we are sinful. But if instead we confess our sin, God is what? Faithful and just to forgive us. Forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Keep coming to Jesus, amen? Here's what I want to do in our last few minutes together. There's a lot more that we could go into from this passage, but I want to stop and pause for a second because here's what, what struck me again anew as I studied this passage. When you read the Bible, when you read the book of Matthew, when you read the New Testament, you know what you find out? The victory of Jesus over Satan is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. But I don't know about you, I find growing up in our context, in our setting, it hasn't big as big of a, been as big of a deal to me. 
We often, when we talk about the gospel, we like to focus on this idea of the forgiveness of our personal sins, the escape from our personal punishment that we deserve because Jesus stood in our place. And hear me, that is 100% correct, and we ought to regularly praise Jesus for that. But remember, the first promise that God gave us of his plan to save us wasn't first about the forgiveness of our sins. It was about the crushing of the serpent. It was about the destruction of Satan. This is a central theme in the biblical story. But again, in our setting, number one, we approach it from like skepticism, kind of disbelief of like, is that real? Is that like just what like pre-enlightenment people thought were going because they were just superstitious? Like, is that real? Come on. Or is demon just a metaphor for like the bad thoughts in our head? So we get skeptical, we disbelieve it. Maybe for you on the other side, what you wrestle is not with skepticism. You've had experiences in your life that have very much convinced you that spiritual beings and evil spiritual beings very much are real. Maybe you come from a background in the occult or spiritism, Wicca, things like that, where you, you actively sought out interaction with spiritual beings, which let me be very clear, The Bible never tells us as humans to seek out interaction with spiritual beings that God created, whether good or evil. So if you're seeking that, just know you're off base. But if in the midst of that, those experiences have showed you, man, the spiritual realm, spiritual beings are real, oftentimes you don't approach it with skepticism, but maybe almost like a fixation. Everything's about this. This is the biggest thing, right? Or even just a fear. Man, that stuff freaked you out. You're like, I don't want to go close to it. I don't know why Hollywood keeps making movies about this. First off, it doesn't look like that. And why would we want that for entertainment? But what I would say to you is this. This passage shows us that as apprentices of this Jesus who came to defeat the serpent, we do not approach this whole topic of Satan and spiritual beings and things like that from skepticism, disbelief, from fear or fixation. Here's how we approach this whole topic. We approach it with humble confidence in Jesus. He's the king. He's the snake crusher. He's the one that Paul says in the book of Colossians, which by the way, the book of Colossians is all about Jesus's victory over Satan. If you want to know more about it, that's a great place to start. Paul calls Jesus in the book of Colossians, the head of all rule and authority, the one who rules over all of them. We need not fear if we are in Christ. That does not mean that the power is in us. The power is in Jesus. So what I want to do is just take a couple of more minutes, and I'm going to just skip the rock across some different places in the New Testament to talk about Jesus' victory over Satan. Because again, I I want to help you see, this is bigger than I think we often think that it is. But as I do this, just know this. If this is something that you realize you need to have a greater understanding about, I would highly recommend to you that you go, if you've never checked out the the full doctrinal statement that our team of elders put together over the last few years, on the website, section five of that is a whole like five or six page section on this idea of created spiritual beings. Ton more scripture references, a lot of resources for further study. I would highly recommend that you dive into that. But let me do this before we wrap up. Come back to this idea. Jesus is the one empowered by the spirit of God to bring the kingdom of God and to destroy the kingdom of Satan. That's who he is. Many scholars think that when it talks about this idea of, when he says this idea of binding the strong man to plunder his house, that it's actually a reference back to what happened during Jesus' temptation from Satan back in Matthew 4. Do you remember that? The way that Satan came to him using his same old bag of tricks. I'm going to speak lies to you. I'm going to tempt you with wrong desires. I'm going to even twist God's word. He has no new tricks because they keep working. But he comes to Jesus. And each time Satan comes with temptation, deception, what does Jesus do? He speaks clear words from scripture, dispelling the lies of Satan. And finally with the last one, when Jesus tells Satan, get away, what does Satan do? He gets away. Like, just think about that fact right there. The prince of darkness, the the ruler of this world has to listen to the voice of Jesus. Do you realize who he is? Do you realize who our king is? I love the way that Jesus says it to his disciples. Again, because you might be thinking, oh yeah, but didn't Satan kind of come back for another round? Didn't he enter into Judas in order to tempt Judas to betray Jesus so that he would be killed? Yeah, he did. 
But you know what Satan didn't count on? That the death of Jesus would actually be the destruction of him too. Remember that's what God said in Genesis 3? You're going to bite his heel, but he's going to crush your head. So what Jesus says to his disciples, even as Judas, empowered by Satan, is coming with a mob to arrest him. In John 14, he says this. He says, I won't talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. He has no right or power of authority over me. I never listened or fell for his tricks. But you know what I'm doing? The reason why I'm not running from him? Because I'm doing what the Father commanded me. I'm doing this out of love for my Father. I will go to that cross. A couple chapters earlier in John chapter 12, Jesus, knowing he's heading toward the cross, says, I'm doing this because you know what? Three things are going to happen when I go and I'm lifted up from the earth to show the kind of death he was going to die. This is going to bring about the judgment of this world. This is going to bring about the casting out of the ruler of this world. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I am here to bind that strong man and take back what is mine. Amen. But here's the idea. All of that, though Jesus says this is about to take place in his death, there's an already not yet element to the victory of Jesus over Satan. There's an already not yet part of it. I love the way that Paul puts it in Colossians 2, where he says, you don't want to know what happened on the cross? Jesus wasn't only dying for your sins. You know what else he was doing? He was disarming the rulers and authorities, a reference to spiritual forces of evil. He was disarming them and making a public disgrace of them by triumphing over them by his cross. The very shameful mode of execution that was meant to demean and shame Jesus actually served to disgrace Satan and his forces. It was the means of his triumph. That already happened. At the cross, Jesus won the decisive victory over Satan. But Satan was not immediately eradicated from this world. That is the not yet idea. Here's what else has already happened. The earlier chapter in Colossians chapter one, he says this, for those of us who have come to Jesus, here's what's already happened. You have already been delivered by God from the domain of darkness, amen? You have been transferred into the kingdom of the son of God's love, amen? That has already happened. You are no longer under the authority of, of, of Satan if you have come to Jesus. But if you have not yet come to Jesus, this has not happened. You are still under the authority and bondage of Satan. No matter how self-determining you feel that you are, how strongly you believe that you are the captain of your own ship, the master of your own fate, you are a captive to the prince of demons. And unless you turn and trust in Jesus, this is where you will remain. This is why, church, it is so important that we share this message about Jesus. Because there is no other name given among men by which we may be saved than the name of Jesus. Jesus said at the end of the book of Matthew, in what we know as the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth, over humans and spirits, all of it has already been given to me. Therefore, he says, join me in plundering the strong man's house. Go therefore to all nations and make disciples. But as you do this, understand this, those still under Satan's rule who seek to oppose you and oppose me, do not expect them to treat you nicely. But even when they attack you, even when they treat you as their enemies, remember the very thing that Jesus recognized here in this passage. The Pharisees thought Jesus was their enemy. He looked at them and went, you're not the main enemy. I am here to go after Satan. In the same way, the apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians chapter six says this. He says, remember this guys, even in the midst of hardship, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. People are not our enemies. And even if they are, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount we're to do with our enemies? Love them. Why? Because here's the real enemy. The struggle is really against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the real battle. That's the main battle. And our job, church, listen to me, is not to win that battle. What does Paul say here is our job? Stand firm. 
stand firm. Trust that Jesus has you and he will win the battle. Again, as we sang earlier, we have an ancient foe who seeks to work his woe. The prince of darkness is grim, but guess what? We don't tremble for him. His rage we can endure, though it will hurt. Why? Because lo, his doom is sure. Behold, his destruction is coming. Not yet, but it is sure. Here's the last verse I want to look at. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, is the promise, the vision of that day when the sure doom of Satan will be realized when he will be taken and cast forever to be tormented day and night forever and ever in that lake of fire that Jesus said was prepared for him. That day is coming. Do you believe that? That is good news, isn't it? All of his mischief and his mayhem, his murder, his corruption, his abuse, the ways that he takes us as image bearers of God and twists us and causes us, leads us to do horrific things to each other, that will be done forever. And yet, a couple of verses later, we see this terrifying truth. Anyone who refused to turn and trust in this Jesus will join Satan in that lake of fire. This is a terrible, horrific fate that we would not wish on anyone. But we dare not shy away from this truth either. This matters because we don't want anyone to experience this. This is what drives us to share this. Do you realize the stakes are eternally high? As Jesus said, again, if you are not with me, you are against me. So again, if you have not come to Jesus, turned and trusted in following him, do so today. The kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come. Have you come to the king? Are you following the king? There can be no more important question. So I would say this, if you'd like to pray with someone, some of us will be up here at the prayer and we would love to pray with you. We're gonna sing one more song to this king before we shift our attention to VBS and getting things ready. But as we do that, would you stand with me as I pray and as the band comes back up? Jesus, we exalt you as the man of God's own choosing. We exalt you as that greater Adam who succeeded starving in a barren desert where Adam and Eve failed in a lush garden surrounded by abundance. We thank you that Satan had no claim over you, but you came to lay claim to all that he took from you. We thank you that you rose victorious, breaking the power of Satan. We thank you for the sure promise that one day he will be cast forever in the lake of fire. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to empower us like you empowered Jesus to join Jesus in this plundering mission to make disciples of all nations so that people might see and know and taste the forgiveness and the life and the power that is only found in King Jesus. Would you do this by your grace? Thank you that Jesus, you will always be a thousand times more committed to your mission than we are. But Holy Spirit, would you drive us to commitment to join you in this come what may. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.